So my message changed so many times going through a text. Of course, action and passion, as Pastor Bob described me, that, that came easy. Action and passion because I had an action and passion in the world that was misplaced and displaced. And I want to talk about suffering in regards to passion. But before I do, I will make a shocking statement. And the statement is this, whether you know it or not. I was responsible for recklessly but unintentionally killing a man. If that shocks you, maybe this may help. Did you know that one-third of the Bible was written by those who took life as well? Moses, David, it says Paul consented to the death of Stephen. Now if that doesn't shock you, maybe this will, that God still chooses to use us. He chooses the scandal of grace to die in my place, to redeem me, get this, redeem us. Then he says, no, I'm not only gonna redeem you, I wanna use you. I have a purpose for you. No, 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 don't look at what you did. I wanna use that too. I'm not gonna throw that away. And as I use that too, all I need you to do is point other people to Jesus. The calling of a man is to point other people to Jesus. But before we do that, we have to have a proper picture of who he is. And I'm convinced, based on the frame that you hold of Jesus Christ, your life will either follow that frame in the right way or the wrong way. Simply put, if you're taking notes, the picture you frame of Jesus will determine your response to Jesus. Why is it huge for us to get into the book of Mark and as Mr. Card said, literally be caught off guard at how Jesus operated. He was a disruptor. Yet we so easily read through the text and we miss what he was trying to accomplish. But I believe our picture of Jesus over the years can possibly be skewed. Now I believe there's so many different false pictures of Jesus out there. And a lot of people's lives follow those false pictures. Getting into the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll get the perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Matthew paints it as the Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one, the king of the Jews. Mark, the suffering servant. There's this amazing presentation about the passion and the emotion of Jesus. In fact, 40% of Mark is written as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer. Luke is written to explain how he was perfect humanity, the son of man. And of course, John, the son of God. And there I have my pretty good four views of Jesus Christ. And there's so many dimensions, as Mike said, to understanding God's word. But why is this important? Because I believe many times we think that Jesus is just my get out of hell ticket to heaven. And then it stops there. I know Jesus, I accepted him, so I'm going to heaven. But Jesus is not just a get out of hell ticket to heaven. Jesus is a get the hell out of you passage while I'm on earth. He's about the here and now, guys. He's about the today. He's a God who saved me, not for a future existence with him. He saved me for a present obedience today. Billy Graham was in a small town. He was doing a big revival. Everybody knew who he was at the time. Of course, he's walking downtown, and a little boy is on the corner street, and Billy's lost, and he says, little boy, can you tell me where the post office is? The little boy says, sure, it's down the street on the right. You can't miss it. Billy Graham said, thank you so much. You know what? I'm having a revival tonight, and I would love to see you there. The little boy said, no, thank you. Billy Graham, taken back, the little boy said, you're going to tell people how to get to heaven, and you don't even know how to get to the post office? 
That's humorous, right? But let's get serious, because that's me. I could tell you how to get to heaven. It's Jesus. But then I struggle with navigating my own world. I struggle with my own landmarks. I struggle with my own circumstances. Why? Because I have an improper picture of Jesus. But if I got to know who he was, my life would follow that pursuit with an action and a passion that is undeniable, cannot be mistaken when the Lord of the universe. Mr. Card said, he's the Lord, y'all. How many times did he say that? He's the the Lord, y'all. That was powerful. That's it. He's the Lord, y'all. So there has to be a suffering involved with our lives. Now I'm going to say it like this, and then I'll explain why I came to this particular point. If we are not willing to suffer like Jesus, we are not willing to succeed in obedience. We're going to go into a section in Mark, of course, chapter 8, eventually verse 34 to verse 37. But right before this text comes to us and Jesus explains what our lives are to do to follow him, every single Matthew, Mark, Luke account, right before he gets into this teaching, it is this most amazing, most important question of all humanity. And it's when he said, hey, who do the people say that I am? You know that question? And they give him the response, what people are saying about Jesus. He then turns and says, okay, that's great and all, but who do you say that I am? And he's asking us today, who do you say that he is? We know Peter's response. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, correct. But flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. My father in heaven has. It's revelation. You could not come to that in your own flesh. But then we miss what he says next. He says he calls his disciples to himself and openly begins to tell them, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer to be betrayed, to be killed. But I will rise again. What does Peter do? Not so, Lord. No way. Suffering? You? Jesus spins on his heels and says, get behind me, Satan. Right? But then he says, why? Because you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Consider what he tried to stop Jesus from doing, suffering. Yet Jesus says, no, that's what it's all about. I must suffer. Suffering is my calling. Suffering is what I'm demonstrating. Suffering on the front end so there can be glory on the back end. Do not be mindful of things of men. Men don't want us to suffer. That word alone is a turnoff. But there's a science to suffering. Can I tell you? You have a choice to suffer on the front end or the back end. I see Ebo Elder here. He traveled a long way to be with us. God bless you, my brother. He could tell you about suffering on the front end, a professional boxer. He had to be in the gym days in and days out, suffering on the front end. I'm an athlete, former professional soccer player. I had to be in the gym. I had to run my track. I had to run my miles on the front end. I suffered through the pain on the front end because if I did not put the work in on the front end when I was playing on the back end, the cramp comes. So you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. It's just whether you choose to do it on the front end willingly or on the back end forcefully. You know when you're on the computer, guys, can I be real? And you're flirting with that line that you shouldn't be on and you know the next click takes you to a site. You could suffer on the front end and say no to your flesh. I got to get away from this even though it would satisfy me temporarily. But if you don't, you know the suffering comes on the, the back end with regret with the cycle of shame. We choose on which spectrum 
we will suffer. The Lord demonstrated, let me suffer first and foremost so there could be ultimate glory on the back end. I know there's a model there for us. And I believe Jesus lays it out for us to walk it with him. He eventually would say, as we get to verse 34 in Mark 8, it will be on the screens. When he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, and I stop and say, if you have a desire to come after Jesus, that means nothing can come before Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Now, if you have a holy moment with yourself and the Lord right now, it's between you and him, what is coming before Jesus in your life? Now, don't just go right to the bad things because there could be a good thing that has come between you and God. A good marriage that doesn't honor God could be between you and him. A good job that keeps you away from your family keeps you away from your children. It's great. You're making awesome money, yet it has got between you and God. There are many things that come before God, and if I want to have a heart to go after them, those things got to get out of the way. Now, I can sit up here and tell you tons of things that have gotten in the way of my relationship with the Lord. Prior to being where I am today, of course, living in the world with such a passion, and now I'm inspired by Mr. Card and his lyrical prowess, and the creativity. I said, I cannot go throughout this session without trying to come up with something myself. So do you mind if I try? Do you, do you mind if I get real to make sure I give the right appeal? Do you mind? Do you mind? Because I'm going to give you my resume. With this resume comes nothing fortified. With this resume, nothing glorified. This resume, I'm ashamed of, but I'm going to share it lyrically. So here we go. I'm going to get real to make sure I give the right appeal. None of this is to be glorified because with this resume comes nothing fortified. You want this life? Take note, it led me straight to prison. This resume wasn't life. It was foolishly living. All of this talk about it being the life, the worldly dreams that we pursue. Well, let's talk about it then because I will show you where it will lead you. Now, I'm not talking about having passions and possessions when aligned with the right view. I'm talking about the wrong perspective when those possessions and those passions own you. You want to talk about what the devil doesn't want you to see? Let's get to it then as I let my past resume speak for me. You want to talk alcohol? Dom P's, Moet, bottles, I've popped them. You want to talk clubs? VIPs, open tabs, I've hopped them. You want to talk cars? 750s, Escalades, I jocked them. You want to talk diamonds? Wrists, neck, ears, I rocked them. You want to talk clothes, Burberry, Purple Label, I've shopped them. You want to talk fights, brawls, broken bones, the bullies, I knocked them. You want to talk sports, Division One, first round pick to pro, I topped them. What do you want to talk about today? The life that's glorified on the surface resume or the truth behind it all that had me living behind the wall? See that previous mentioned? That's the resume of a fool. Don't get it twisted for one second, young ones. None of that is the definition of cool. Cool is staying calm when the overwhelming pressure is on. Cool is standing up for what's righteous, regardless of the majority strong. Cool is being yourself and not conforming to a worldly mold. Cool is warm with gentleness and love and has nothing to do with cold. Cool is integrity and the way that Christ walked. Cool is accountability and the truth that Christ talked. Cool is the one that knows in him you are safe. Cool is the man that stands strong for his faith. This resume is now my obituary. 
and a document that holds no glory. And if you think that it does, you miss the moral of my entire story. Pathetic I was, blind by the world's sights. If the flashing begins to hurt, you know you're following the wrong lights. And I was following the wrong lights strongly, passionately. I was unashamed to live in the world. And I was successful in that world. But let me tell you, when you invest into the world, it always pays you back in pain. It will always pay you back with bankruptcy. No matter how long you're in it, no matter how much of a handle you have on it, it will always turn on you and take what you thought you were given to it. Jesus gives us a solution to deal with how we get caught up in the world. See, the only thing that I can present to you today is how damaging the God of self, if not dealt with, can become in your life. You know what the God of self looks like? Just look in the mirror today. Look straight in the mirror. That's the God of self. Now here's the sequence. The God of self empowers sin. And when you're in sin, you give access to Satan. There's the three S's. When self is winning and living in your life, selfishness, self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-assurance, and even the opposite of that spectrum. On one side, I think I'm incredible, self. On the other side, when I have an improper perception about self, I'm terrible, self-loathing, low self-esteem. But when self is ruling on the throne of your heart, consider how we get so caught up in sin. And your sin's not my sin, but sin is sin. And then when I'm playing in sin, the enemy, the, the devil, the Satan, has access to my life. And we wonder why he's walking right into our households. He's coming right into some households through electronic devices. Dads, because we might fail to check up on what our kids are looking at on their technology. But you are their spiritual authority. You have the right to check up on them to make sure the enemy is not walking into your house through those devices electronically. That's what God has called you to do. So how do we deal with self? So that sin can't enter in and so that Satan doesn't have access. Jesus tells us, you desire to come after me? Deny yourself. You ever heard this teaching? We say it's dying to self. But I thought about that all night. Dying to self sounds like that I'm just surrendering to self. It's not dying to self. It's self has to die. There's a big difference. This isn't self-denial. This isn't surrendering to self. This is self-surrendering to Christ. Can we take a field trip? You mind taking a field trip with me? What does self-dying look like? If we were to go to the cemetery together right now, and I'm going to tell you to do two things. I'm going to actually tell you on one side, when we get there, you encourage those in the cemetery. Say whatever you want. Flatter them, encourage them, praise them, applaud them, compliment them. Will there be a response? Then on the other side, you slander them, you gossip them, you talk about them, you offend them. You bring up their moms. What will the response be? Nothing, because they're dead. Do you understand when the Lord called us to himself, he said, you got to die. And the reason why we're so offended by the world around us is because we're still responding with self. Self must die. And when self dies, Christ can rise. I love how Mr. Card put it. He talked about the perfect silences or non-responses of Jesus yesterday. I said, I wrote that in my message. Because as we get into Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 15, 
It's amazing. They're accusing him falsely. They're bringing out false testimonies, and Jesus is sitting there, and they ask him, what do you have to say for yourself? And it says, he answered them, not a word. The silence of Jesus is beautiful and perfect. But how did he maintain that silence? Because with much lesser accusations in my life, I'm quick to defend me. I'm quick to respond if I feel like you're wrong. Yet Jesus silently maintains his composure. He's unresponsive. At other times, of course, he spoke out. But what I'm trying to get us to see is how it is possible to be unresponsive to the world around us because we're ultra-responsive to the world above us. When I'm responding to him, I'll never forget it. The time I spent in prison, I actually became the tear barber. Somehow, someway, I didn't have hair. I had a buzz cut. I find myself cutting hairs. And the moral of that particular story was I felt bad for the guys that couldn't get their haircuts. There were certain people that just would not cut certain people's hairs because of their color, because of their background, because of their charge. And they would all come to me. And I had a decent rapport. I said, you know what? I'm going to get the barber job, even though I have no idea how to cut a hair. So here I am specializing in buzz cuts. Everybody that came to the chair, zip. But I'll tell you, this one guy, his name was Mr. Green. He was a Muslim brother. He prayed five times a day. He read that Quran, but he prized himself in his beard. Above and beyond, he'd every day tend to his beard. He'd be in the mirror shaving it hours a day. When I had the clippers, which was almost every day, I would allow him to take the clippers, which you're not allowed to do, and shape up his beard. I was gracious to him. I thought I had a good relationship with him. One day, he's coming onto the housing unit. A new officer tells me, Mayor, pack up the box, which means he needs the box while he has to do a count in, countdown or a count in or whatever he was going to do. He just needs the box. It could be a weapon. So I pack it up as quick as I can. I give it to the officer. Mr. Green's coming on the housing unit, and he says, Matt, I need the clippers. I said, I'm sorry. i got to turn them in. He starts flipping out at me with such rage. He starts to belittle my faith. He starts to run up and down the housing unit. Literally cursing, saying, I'm going to bleep this white boy up. You don't understand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bleep. I'm going to kill him. I'm just sitting there in shock. Nobody knows what's going on. I'm gaining my composure. He catches me off guard completely. He's now in the back of the housing unit, getting all riled up, getting everybody all into a frenzy. I go into my area. My first thought, guys, was not to be all holy in that very moment. My first thought, literally, was to go shut him up. The only way I knew how when I was growing up. But what was crazy is earlier in the morning, as I woke up and spent time with the Lord in his word, very small voice said, do not feed your flesh today. Do not eat today. So hours into the day when this encounter happens, I had not eat in a single thing. I had fasted, it's called. I said no to my flesh. And in that moment when he is tempting and taunting my flesh, I went into my area, I got on my knees, and I literally said, Lord, I need you now. As I'm rising out of prayer, he's running down the housing unit, literally coming to attack me, directly into my three by eight area. Another inmate stepped in and put his arm in between us. He got his finger so close to my face, he began to poke it. Boom, boom in my face. And I'm taking it, I'm taking it. But I don't really remember what I said after that, 
except for eyewitnesses said, Matt, there was such a composure and a peace about you. You were able to diffuse him, calm everybody else down that was literally getting on the edge of their seats because they all respected me, gang members alike, and somehow diffuse the situation. I went back into my area. I got back down on my knees. I thanked the Lord that I was spared just that moment. I knew it wasn't over because he went to the back of the housing unit, began to yell again, I told you, I punked him, this and that. I went back to the gate. I said to the officer, sir, I know I'm not allowed to have the box, but I'm asking you to trust me. May I have it for a few moments? He said, sure, mayor. I got the box. I opened it. I set the clippers back up. Went to the back of the housing unit. I tapped Mr. Green on his shoulder. He turned around belligerently. I said, hey, I got you the box. Just let me know when you're done. And I walked away. He ran down the housing unit saying, that's what I thought. For the next 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, he sat in the mirror, shaping up his beard. It became longer than I expected, just like this story, by the way. <laughs> but as I checked up on him, I noticed that he was getting further and further up his jawline. Come to find out, he had made such a mistake that he had to cut his whole beard off. Now, if you don't see the irony in that story, <laughs> you see, what happened was, I said, God, self has to die. I need Jesus to live here now. And he says, you don't worry about the battle, son. And the whole entire tear erupted because they found it hilarious. And the echo was, don't mess with Matt. God has Matt's back. So here's my long and drawn out point. Most of the problems we face can be solved by subtracting self. The tension will cease in your life when self is removed as the motivating factor in your reactions and even your actions. Imagine men, if we woke up each day and said, it is no longer I who live, like Paul wrote. It is no longer I who lived here, Lord. I need you to reign in my life. And I went in my day dealing with my wife, dealing with my kids, dealing with my coworkers, dealing with strangers, dealing with non-believers as if it was Christ in me. What would the outcome be when I choose to suffer on the front end, when I get on my knees? When I choose to suffer in prayer, even though I'm tired at night? When I choose to suffer on the front end, there will be glory on the back end. We continue. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. All right, Matt, how do I get to this point of getting self out of the way? Jesus says, take up your cross. We have a misconception about the cross of Christ. We believe that the cross that he bore is our cross. Not so. Not so. His cross accomplished so many things for us. There's an illustration that I want to use. Menelik II was an Ethiopian emperor in 1889 to 1913. Menelik II heard about a new state-of-the-art device that America and the European countries were using to execute their criminals, and it was the electric chair. He said, I want, we want, I want me one of those. So he ordered an electric chair until it got to Ethiopia, and he found out that it needed electric. And in the days before electricity, he said to himself, undaunted, if I cannot use the chair to execute my commands, I will use it to execute my authority. And he sat in the electric chair as his throne for the next several years. And I'm saying Jesus did something infinitely greater than that. You see, he took this instrument of death and torture 
and he transformed it into a symbol of life, into an avenue of forgiveness that I don't deserve. And when I consider the cross of Christ, I am humbled to bear this cross that is customized for my life. You see, that cross that he bore took away my sin, my shame, my guilt, and it helps me deal with self. The cross that he gives me to bear, it keeps self dead so that his spirit can live. The cross is the place where my flesh is pinned down. The cross can be a place of prayer for you when you say no to your flesh. The cross can be a place of fellowship. The cross is something that we are carrying. It's not something that is bearing down on us. See, it's not a, it's not a set of circumstances like people think. It's not a burden. You ever heard somebody say, oh, I'm just bearing you know, this illness. It's my cross. No, it's not. Guys, your cross is not your spouse. Don't you dare. <laughs> my cross was not my incarceration. I got transferred at one point. I, I went from Mid-State Correctional Facility to the Southern State Correctional Facility. It was closer to my hometown. I would know more inmates. I would know more guards. I got there, and there's a procedure. All your stuff follows you. Four years and about four months of stuff accumulated. Let me just say, one bag, a trash bag, this big, filled with my paperwork alone, letters, books, my commentaries that I had sent in, just them alone. Carrying them in one bag was awkward. But now you got to consider all of your other property, all of your clothing, all of your food, all of your, your fans and your, your word processors, your electronics, whatever you accumulated. I got it all. I'm transferred. You go to the property office. You get a bin. You put all your stuff in the bin. You roll across the compound. You move into your new housing unit. It's very simple. I get there, I'm there for seven days, I'm getting used to a new routine. A guard comes up to me and says, Mayor, you gotta pack up. He says, I don't know what's going on, but they're moving you. I said, okay, so I begin to pack up, I get into the bins. He stops me halfway across the compound and says, hold up, this doesn't even sound right. I don't like what I'm hearing. I'm gonna move you to a safer unit because they're trying to put you on compound B. I said, whatever works. I get to my new unit, I unpack. Literally after dinner, Mayor, pack up. Somebody wants to mess with you. They're moving you across compound A into compound B. So I pack up all my stuff. I get my carts. I get to the gate where they open the slide gate and you go about a half a mile. And the sergeant comes up to me and politely says, lose the bleeping carts, mayor. I didn't know what he was talking about. Lose the carts. How am I going to take all my property? He was basically saying I had to carry everything on my own. So here I am, not knowing what to do with four giant bags of property. An old head, an inmate, saw me and said, hey, let me teach you a lesson. Ask for extra bags, make a harness. So I grabbed these extra bags, you tie them up real tight, then you tie around the one knot of the bag, the big bag, then you tie it around the other knot of the bag, and then you use it as a harness to hoist over your shoulder, and that's just one. So you got this giant bag on this side, you got this giant bag on this side, and you gotta do the other one like that. So now I got the other one around my neck, I got these four giant bags, displaced weight, what can I compare it to? It feels like you're carrying a dead body. Not that I know from experience, though. <laughs> but it's the heaviest, most awkward weight, and every step, it shifts. And that trash bag is digging into your neck and down your back, and you feel it, and it's pinching. And I'm crying on the inside. I'm complaining. I'm cursing. I get to my new unit. I unpack my stuff. The bunk bed literally was this tight. 
the top bunk was about two feet above the bottom bunk. So I'm stuck in the bottom bunk. I take off my shirt. I am literally so agitated, so frustrated. I'm letting my body breathe. And an inmate comes up behind me and looks at my back. He sees the lacerations. He says, dude, you got this giant X on your back. It looks like you were carrying a cross. And in that moment, conviction. And in my mind, I carried everything but my cross. Because two days later, Mayor, pack up. They're now moving you a mile to a whole new compound. Can I tell you, I set out on that same journey with the same content, with the same weight, with a brand new attitude. Can I tell you, as I picked up the weight, the first trip, it buried me. But when I picked up my cross, before I touched the weight, it raised me. In fact, I was running like a man possessed by the Holy Spirit. I'm running in the big yard. I'm putting down my bags. I'm helping out older inmates with their stuff. I'm literally grabbing their stuff. I'm running 15 yards back. I'm doing this, and some guy comes up and says, dude, you better stop running. Those towers are going to take you out. <laughs> and I remember thinking, there would probably be no better way to go out than that. <laughs> we got to a gate. I put my stuff down. I'm smiling. I'm praying, I'm praising, and a guy looks at me and says, you look like you're enjoying this, dude. And I tell you the truth, true story, I said, no, I'm just thinking about what Jesus went through when he carried the cross. His prophetic response, word. <laughs> word. I get to my new unit, I unpack, I got the same lacerations, but can I tell you something? The difference in the outcome, because I chose to suffer on the front end, I said, Lord, I can't do this. Self's got to die. I need you to carry this. And when I got to my new housing unit, there was such a different outcome. People were coming up to me with gifts. Literally, a guy came up to me with a stack of men's health magazines. He literally said, dude, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen a single person help other people in here. You see why that was highlighted? Nobody helps other people in here because we're all selfish. When self reigns, I'm not helping you. Either he was being generous and he saw the, the value in serving or he realized it was time for him to downsize his property as well. <laughs> so here's the cross. Write this down. The cross is something you do self-sacrificially that helps someone else out redemptively. The cross is something you do self-sacrificially to help your children out redemptively, to help your wife out redemptively to help your coworkers out redemptively. It is as easy as taking out the trash that is not your duty, saying no to self, to serve others around you. Why? Because selfless service is the clearest way to see Jesus. When your flesh is no longer in the way, that is the clearest way with passion that the Holy Spirit can be seen in your life. So the cross of Christ, of course, paid my sin debt in full. He won redemption for me. But I am to take my cross and walk redemption out. When's the last time you looked at the walks and the steps you take as redemptive? That every step you take, the Lord has redeemed. Every mistake you will ever make, the Lord has redeemed. There's not a single thing you could possibly do that could get that love off of you. Redemption. And I get that picture in my mind of Jesus, that he laid down his life for me self-sacrificially and I didn't deserve it. You better believe I become like him, when I think about him. You better believe, with that idea in my mind, I recognize I am a preview 
of the coming attraction. You ever been to the movies? What is the first thing they show you on the screen? You got your, your big soda and your popcorn. On the screen comes what is called a trailer. The trailer is designed to pique your curiosity, to gain your attention. It's to get you to want to come back and see the main attraction. The Christian is to be a preview, a trailer that is attractive, that piques curiosity, that gets people to want to see the big picture, Jesus. It is by my life that that is possible. Let me illustrate. I sat at my table every single day and I would read the word of God. I would get into the word of God. I would find my peace. I was imprisoned by God's peace in the word each day. I realized I had to get up earlier than my peers. 6 a.m. when the lights would shoot on in the housing unit, that's when hell woke up. That's when men with hell on their hearts would wake up. And the behaviors in the morning were more telling than the behaviors in the evening. So I said, I'd be foolish if I wait to wake up with them. So I said, I gotta wake up earlier than hell. So I would get up earlier than hell and I'd get on my knees, I'd say no to self, I'd say yes to the spirit, I'd get in the word. And what I did not know as I was living out this lifestyle of obedience to suffering on the front end, so there could be glory on the back end, that my peers were watching me. Didn't know this. One such peer was one of my neighbors. He moved in one day, and I'll just kind of tell you what he did. He moved in, and instead of moving into his area and unpacking his bed, which is the norm when you move into prison, you make your bed, it's called, he went to the back of the housing unit. And as he went to the back of the housing unit, he did something that you just do not do. You see, whoever runs the TV on the housing unit is usually a gang member, a blood. And he has the remote in his pocket, and he literally doesn't let anybody touch the TV. I've seen people get jumped for touching the TV. So I learned early on, TV doesn't lose fights. I'm not going to touch the TV. So I stayed away from it. But this guy moves on to the housing unit. Let me give you his name. His name was Little John. Let me give you his description. Little John was a 330-pound man. Come to find out, Little John was a former mob enforcer for the Genovese crime family in New York City. So Little John takes his 330-pound self, he walks to the back of the housing unit, and he begins to change the channel. You better believe the whole housing unit stops. All the bloods kind of get up. They all look at their OG. And for all the vanillas in here, OG means original gangster. <laughs> Don't tap somebody and ask them, I just told you. He changed the channel. What I saw next blew my mind. Because what happened previous when somebody did that was an all-out stomping. But everybody just watched what this 330-pound man put on the TV. Nobody wanted to touch it. You know what he put on? He put on Animal Planet. <laughs> and for the next two hours, they watched Animal Planet. He turned it back to the station, went into his area, and made his bed. I got to know him. I brought that story up. I said, yo, that first day you walked in, you went to the back of the housing unit, what the heck was that all about? He said to me, Matt, whoever runs the TV runs the housing unit, right? I said, yeah. He goes, who ran the TV that day? You see what he did? He took over. He imposed his size and fear upon man to take over. But there was one thing that the Lord wanted him to see, something he had never seen before, something that he could not Defined. He could not explain. He could not get in his own efforts, nor could he ever have it because of his hard heart. And the Lord wanted him to see peace. But the peace of God comes by way of suffering. 
a suffering because self will not allow God's peace into your heart. Self will cause tension and chaos. And here I am, unaware, walking with God's peace. And one day, little John pulled me aside and he said, I got to tell you something. I've been watching you. You definitely do not want to hear that in prison from a guy like little John. <laughs> I've been watching you. And then he said, and I was hoping, he used the word hope, I was hoping that you would fail. I was hoping that I would catch you cursing. I was hoping that you grab one of those flick books, an inappropriate book, a book with, with nude pictures in it, and go into the bathroom. That was a common sight. I was hoping you would argue with one of these knuckleheads. I was hoping you would come out of character so I could point at that book you read every day and call you a hypocrite like everybody else that carries that book. And then he said these words, but you did not give me that opportunity. You understand what happened there? I said, John, I would have given you a billion opportunities to call me a hypocrite. But what you saw was not me living, but Christ inside of me. Amen. And the peace that I have is from him, and you can have it too. You see, he was so blown away at this presentation. And in that moment, you know what came flashing back to my mind? Was a line that my mother would say to me when I was 16 years old, and I'd be flying out of the house. Young ones, my mom would say, Matthew, hold up. I'd turn around, and she would say, you may be the only Bible somebody reads. And all these years later, in prison, little John said to me, I've been reading you. I've been reading the pages you've been putting out, kid. Dads, your children are reading you. They are looking for what you're putting out with your life actively, not verbally. And based on Christ in us, that is the greatest attraction for anyone around us to get to know him personally. I say all that to say not how awesome I am as a disciple. I am actually the biggest idiot you will ever meet. But I recognize it, that God would choose to use a fool like me to make much of himself. I say that story to let you know little John, who was once a soldier for the Godfather, is now a soldier for God the Father. And he gave his whole life to the Lord. How much time do I have? Oh, yeah, we good. So let's get back into the text. Whoever desires to come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. Self can't rule. How do I do that, Lord? Pick up your cross. It's perfect for you. It's customized for your back. It's not a burden I'm asking you to bear. It's actually an attitude, a state of mind. It's a faith to be obedient on the front end so that you do not suffer on the back end. And then you can come after me and follow me. And here's my question rhetorically. Are we following the Lord, men, at the same intensity we once followed the world? At the same intensity we pursued the things of this world. Are we following the Lord with that same passion? Is there an obvious action in my life that I'm pursuing the things of God? That I'm more mindful of the things of God than the things of man, as Jesus rebuked Peter about? Am I following the Lord so closely that this will not come as an offense. This will come as something that is supposed to solidify your faith. And I have no problem with this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have no problem with the way many of us can raise our voices and our hands at a game. I have a problem and we can't do it when I hear the sound of Jesus' name. I lose my mind for the eagles of Philadelphia 
but I don't lose my mind for the Lion of Judah. I will celebrate with the Eagles on Super Bowl Sunday, but if my celebration in that moment is greater than my celebration for Jesus, something's wrong. And I love you enough to tell you that. There has to be conviction, a passion, a suffering that is attached with this calling. The world will get you to bow forcefully. I love the Philippian verse. Paul literally says, this mind must be in you because it's in Christ. He tells us about how Christ literally, he put aside his divine powers even though he stayed divine. And then he went to the cross. And then this declaration says, because he did that, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on earth, under the earth, above the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, y'all. You understand what that means? He's saying you can choose to do it now willfully, or one day it will happen forcefully. You can choose to get on your knees now because he is worthy. Or one day it will happen forcefully, and that's going to be a sad sight. What's really sad is about a lot of people who will take a knee during an NFL American anthem. One day there's going to be a sad reality where they're not going to want to take a knee, but they won't be able to stop it because they're going to be so humiliated in the presence of a beautiful Savior. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying it like this. I need to have the right passion that is harnessed by the Spirit to pursue the things of God. I pursued the things of the world with that same passion, and the world always got me to bow. I don't know what you've been through. My family's been through a lot. I lost an older brother in 2005, but I watched my parents navigate such tragedies, my older brother losing his life, me taking a life, but I watched them always go back to the cross. I watched them pick up their own cross with an attitude that said, God, you are good no matter what. You are good even if it doesn't feel good. We trust that the truths in your word are good. And that was an attractive thing when people usually do the opposite. They get to their knees and they curse God because the world will get you to bow. You ever had a long night of drinking? And then the next morning, you are bowed down at the toilet because the world is going to get you to bow. And I'm saying, I don't want to wait until the world gets me to bow. I want to do it willingly. I want to get on my knees. Can I tell you the moment it hit me like this, like a ton of bricks? I'm wearing inmate 314525E uniform, and I'm walking in my controlled movement where you would walk through a metal detector and you would get patted down, but the officers could pull you aside and tell you to, Mayor, get against the wall. And you stop and you listen to a command and you get against the wall. If he so chose, he would say, now get on your knees. And you would have to get on your knees at the command to a man with your hands up. And here I am in total humiliation. And in my mind it says, look at you on your knees with your hands raised to a man and you couldn't do it for me. Changed my whole perspective. That I don't care what you think if my hands are raised. I'm not talking about always raising the hands because sometimes I can't. My hands stay at the side. But I'm talking about a heart that is bowed and it's obvious and it's passionate that if the Lord died for me, how can I not want to live for him? Amen. Jesus says, you want to come after me? you got to deny yourself. you got to pick up your cross, and then you can come after me. And then he changes gears. As Mr. Card said, there was an immediacy in the book of Mark. And Jesus says, 
you don't understand what I'm saying? Consider this. Verse 35. If you desire to save your own life, you're going to lose it. Man, if, if you desire to try to get it all together, try to fix that problem you're dealing with on your own, you're trying to keep it all together, keep your composure and your own self-confidence, you're going to lose it. It's going to come unraveled. He's saying, hey, you want to save your life? You have to lose your life for my sake. Not just lose it, lose it for any sake. You lose it for my sake. My sake is the gospel's sake. The gospel is for you, not against you. The gospel is good news that redeemed you to use you, all of you, not just the half of your heart that is usable, even the hurt in your heart. God wants to use. I'm asking, as Jesus said, if we will lose our lives for his sake, we will find it. I'm asking that after this retreat, we don't continue to try to keep it all together. I'm asking you that we would passionately lay it down at the feet of the Savior. Lay down yourself. Give it all. Lay down your sin, past, present, and future. Give it all. Let him know you need him in your life. Do not be ashamed to claim the name that took away your pain and shame. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul? And I read that final part. What will a man give in exchange for a soul? If we were to answer that, what would you say? With a sound mind, a reasonable, rational mind, you would say, I wouldn't give anything in exchange for my soul. And I, I couple that thought with this rhetorical question. What did God give? in exchange for your soul. He gave us his all. He gave us Jesus Christ. The wisest thing for me to do as a man is to get the proper picture of him so that my life properly and passionately responds to him. Amen. My name is Matthew Mayer, and I'd rather stand alone with Jesus than sit in a crowd without him. And since we're not dead... We're not done. We've heard it. Let's do it. God bless.